0: Astonishing Legends would like to thank Bespoke Post, Helix, Mint Mobile, Betterment, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible.
1: Last week, Connor J. Randall joined us to share some of his considerable experiences at the Stanley Hotel, from his first visit when he was just 10 years old and he saw a door lock itself right before his eyes, to when he got hired as the concierge at the age of 17. Eventually, that role evolved into not only a tour guide for the Stanley, but to an in-house paranormal investigator, part of a team with his closest friend, Carl Pfeiffer. Connor and Carl conducted hundreds, if not over a thousand, investigations at the Stanley over the years, and along the way, began to develop experimental methods of ITC, or instrumental transcommunication. One of those experiments has since become better known as the Estes method, and it's making waves in the paranormal world. Some would say, on both sides of the veil. Tonight, we're honored to be one of the first interviews ever recorded with Connor, specifically about the Estes Method, how it was developed, and where it may go from here. We had a fair amount of questions about it, as I'm sure you can imagine. So grab your headphones and a notepad, because one of the things Connor is hoping some of you folks will do is try the Estes Method out for yourselves, and report back to him with your own results and observations. However, he also wants to make sure you do it right. And tonight, he'll explain precisely what you need to do to properly set it up. (laughs) Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. I am inclined to believe that our personality hereafter will be able to affect matter. If this reasoning be correct, then, if we can evolve an instrument so delicate as to be affected, moved, or manipulated by our personality as it survives in the next life, such an instrument, when made available, ought to record something. Thomas Edison, Scientific American Magazine, 1920. And, and, we're back, back, we're back. (laughs) Are you an EVP? Well, how'd you know?
2: That's pretty good. I I enjoy that.
1: Well, as the listeners now know, I don't do EVP impressions nor Jack Nicholson very well, so I'm going to stop doing both.
2: Well, thanks for coming back, folks. Uh, 2019 has been a crazy year. We'd like to thank everyone for all your support this year in every way, from supporting our sponsors to grabbing some of our merch to being so interactive with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit. We really appreciate it. We'd also like to thank those of you that gave our new show, The Midnight Library, that we're producing, a chance. Season one of that has finished, although I would keep an eye on that feed for a possible bonus episode this month. Season two will likely begin in late February of 2020, after our editor Sarah returns from maternity leave. Congratulations, Sarah. And it will feature 13 episodes.
1: Yeah, you know, I've been enjoying that one as well. Tonight's show will also be our last regular show of the year. I'm not counting the holiday special, well, because no one should really, which will release late on December 23rd, so you can tune out Uncle Randy's bad knock-knock jokes on Christmas Eve. Poor Uncle Randy. All right, let's (laughs) get into tonight's show.
2: Connor Randall's back, and I will say that I did greatly enjoy the Stanley Hotel episode that we did last week with him. It's an amazing place. He spent a lot of time there, but this is the one I was waiting for. I am (laughs) so excited to talk about the Estes Method. It is just, I just couldn't believe it when he told us he had not been asked about this or interviewed about this directly in the course of all the stuff he's been doing with Hellier and all those guys have been doing They've been just producing so much great content for a couple yeah. of years now. And he yeah. still hasn't been interviewed about this. It's mind blowing to
1: me. And I don't know if Carl has, maybe Carl has somewhere along the yeah. way, but I don't think there's any formal body really directing, you know, like we need to get a statement from these guys about this. I think, well, they I just, think that's us. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, uh, no, I'm glad we did. And it was yeah. a natural evolution from his work at the Stanley hotel To what's been done in Hellier Part One and Two. It flows, and of course, it just made sense to have him back again for a. It's not really even a part two of the Stanley, although, like I said, one dovetails into the other in that it's an evolution of a methodology and a practice and a path of study and research in the field that leads them there to what you're going to see in Hellier 2, and it just gets weirder and weirder, which is what I love. Well, on that note, let's go to the interview.
2: So we are back with Connor Randall for part two of our series with him, and I like to say it's part two on The Stanley Hotel, but it's kind of a misnomer. Part one was really about the hotel. Part two is going to be more about a method that he and his close friend Carl Pfeiffer developed to facilitate transcommunication, which you're going to be hearing more about in a minute. We touched a little bit on that last week, but we wanted to save the details for this week. When we had you on, Connor, last week, you talked about how you more or less grew up at the Stanley in Estes Park. And during that time, you conducted what you thought probably amounted to, I think, hundreds, if not thousands, of paranormal investigations in the same space as a resident paranormal investigator, along with your best friend, director, editor, and cinematographer Carl Pfeiffer, right? That's fair to say?
0: Correct. That is the summation of last episode and, yeah, my background.
2: Okay. So this unique opportunity allowed you to repeatedly examine the same site over and over and over again. And ultimately, that became kind of a great control group setting for you to develop new methods of investigation, right? That's fair to say as well?
0: Yeah, so much is changing for a lot of investigators. We had the opportunity to be in the same place night after night, trying to communicate with the same ghosts night after night.
2: And that's what's really amazing about where we're going tonight. So over time, you and Carl and sometimes others like Michelle Tate started experimenting with different ways of ITC or instrumental transcommunication. So being so familiar with that property and being able to know not only what types of interactions to expect, but where and when to expect them as well as the frequency of interactions that might occur over a given time period, that granted you insight into not only who or what you might be interacting with, but the ability to analyze a wide variety of varying factors that might influence the likelihood that you or someone on one of your tours was actually going to experience something. And this knowledge gave you the opportunity to hone not only your methods, but your gear and ultimately the combination of those two things to try and acquire the most successful communication with the spirits of the Stanley. Is that a fair assessment?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And appreciate it as well.
2: (laughs) Well, I'm just trying to make sure I got my head wrapped around it before we dive in here. So then this is my last little preamble. Just as you were beginning to evolve something new that many consider now, I think, those that have heard of it, groundbreaking in terms of success, Carl was simultaneously filming everything you were doing, creating an incredible documentation of the genesis of what is now known as the Estes Method, This was the perfect storm of documentation for this, and tonight we want to ask you a ton of questions about it, where it's gotten to now, how it's influenced your thoughts on what it means to be dead, your observations on what kind of experiences these spirits may be having on the other side, and where the Estes method goes from here. Are you game,
0: sir, for this tonight? Absolutely. Let's do it. I think I've been waiting to have this conversation for a while, so I'm excited.
2: Well, let's start there. That's one of the first things that amazes me because all of this has been several years in the making. And I think the last thing you said to us right before we disconnected with you from last our last interview was that no one had asked you about, you've not done anything specifically dedicated to the development of this process.
0: Yeah, that's correct. Um, Greg Newkirk made an article about a year and a half ago specifically about the Estes method and how to perform it for his website, Week and Weird, which was awesome to see because that's part of it is that we, we're not just saying this in, in a braggadocious way. We're saying like, we want people to try this and we want to see what their successes are like. We just want to make sure that people are doing it the right way. So the more we can get this out there, the better.
2: So you're not selling licenses, proprietary licenses for practicing the Estes method. We can't get a certificate or anything.
1: (laughs) That's correct. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny you say that, Scott, because I have seen a few comments where it seems like some investigators, I'm not sure if they're on TV or just YouTube or wherever, but they're using this method and not crediting Connor and Carl and Michelle in developing this, they're just trying it, but
0: not telling anybody where they got it. How, did, how does that make you feel, Connor? Well, of course, it's a natural bit of frustration. The thing is, is like we are. it's not like we created a device. We did not invent the spirit box, but we invented a technique. I'm not saying that we're the first people to do this, but I don't know. It's the first that I've ever seen it done. And then in addition, it's been a culmination of, hundreds of hours of work. And so, yeah, we, the reason we named it the Estes Method is because none of us are egotistical enough to name it after ourselves. So we named it after the place where we invented it, up in Estes Park, Colorado. So all that I would hope, I don't even necessarily need, need credit. I would just ask that people call it the right name <laughs> so they know <laughs> the background right. and where they can find out more information on that. Well, here's a question. How would people do it
1: wrong then? When you say you're trying to get them to do it the right way, what are some things that could go wrong with this? Not in a terrible way, but you're just not duplicating the experiment exactly the
0: same way, which is what you want in an experiment. Right. There's a couple of big errors that I see. We kind of lurk around social media and all the different ghost TV programs and YouTube shows and kind of try to keep an eye on some of that. Oftentimes people do not use sound-canceling headphones, which inherently is just disregarding the purpose of the experiment there should be no chance that you can hear the questions that are being asked. And so that gets rid of really trust for the way the session is working. And another thing that people tend to fall into is they tend to let the receiver guide the session. The receiver, by the nature of this experiment, is going to hear something. And so if you just let that person continuously, and and they sort of fit the story of the ghost around what the person is saying, that may not necessarily be accurate. So you need to have some cross-check and some confirmation questions.
1: Well, Connor, there's one thing I will say about watching Spirits of the Stanley and Hellier 2, and Hillier 1 for that matter. When you do this technique, people have to realize, this is kind of a note to viewers and listeners, you have to realize and keep in mind that whoever's receiving the audio from these sessions here with the SB7 or the ghost box, they can't hear what's being asked. All they can hear is what's coming through on the radio. And when you realize that, what, to me, what was probably one of the most freaky things about watching all that, and one of the coolest, is that it's a conversation that's going on that's in context. And some of the answers that you get are really direct. And again, as I said before, I think in part one, is that that really narrows down, for me anyway, the opportunity for chance or for coincidence in getting an answer that seems like... It's an answer to a direct question. And the answers that you were getting, that's what's astounding to me. Was that the thing that was kind of freaking you guys out when you were actually
0: there filming it? Absolutely. From the very beginning, especially there's an extra shock of being the person who's listening and going back and seeing how successful this can be sometimes.
1: Well, one thing that I think everybody wanted to listen to, wanted to hear and experience themselves was a little bit of the audio that the receiver was getting through the headphones. What was the reason for not playing at least some of that audio? Is it just too annoying? I know it can be when you're listening to the actual radio going off, the SB7. But can you describe a little bit then why you guys didn't feature some of that audio in the show and what it's like maybe, or describe it, I guess, as best as you can, what the
0: receiver is hearing? Mm -hmm. So that's a good question. And people have asked that. We're not really hiding anything. The real answer is it's because we didn't have an output running into a recorder that was recording the audio. It was just the person who was listening. We have recorded the audio in the past. We did a little bit in Spirits of the Stanley and then we do sometimes on our own as well. I fully realize that this sounds like a cop out. Sometimes I think it's possible that recording the audio grounds that radio feed a little bit too much. That's debatable because we've also had successful ones while recording the audio, but basically what you're hearing and what anybody who puts this device on is going to be hearing is a somebody, it sounds like somebody flipping through the radio stations really, really quickly. I like to set the spirit box to just about the fastest rate that it can go. And you're hearing this just stuttering along. It becomes increasingly shocking, especially while it's running at high rates of speed, when you hear entire words and sometimes entire sentences across this device. It's important to note that a spirit box does not randomly hop around stations. It doesn't go from 87.9 to 105.5. It's scanning in order at a certain rate. And so you will hear radio DJs. That's a natural side effect of this. You will only hear them for a moment though. And when you hear one voice saying something that crosses five, six, seven stations, it becomes increasingly jarring. And yeah, it's impressive.
2: Well, and that brings me to a question about it in terms of what you're hearing. When you hear a sentence or a complete word that maybe is a multi-syllabic word, are you hearing a mixture of syllables from different voices or does it seem like from one source when
0: you hear that? It typically sounds like from one source. It is extremely rare that you will have a voice that is the same voice. If I'm sitting there and I'm trying to talk, and and we're, you know, we think that there's spirit communication coming through, it's possible that some of those voices could be higher pitched, some could be lower pitched. The only spirit in my experience that's had pretty much the same vocal tone, no matter what, is Eddie the Ghost, as people learned about from the last session. He has a very deep, very recognizable voice. I don't know how he is able to do it better than others, but (laughs) it's. It's different voices and different words.
2: Hey, folks, we were having some technical difficulties there with the audio quality for Connor, but we fixed it. So from here on out, you'll be hearing him a lot clearer. Sorry for the interruption. Let's come back around a little bit because I want to make sure listeners understand exactly how this process works. Last week, we talked a little bit about the clay for this kind of communication that allows you to pick out these words and what's going on. And you had mentioned briefly Frank's box and uh, Constantin Rotevay's experiments. Could you maybe tell our listeners a little bit about what those are and how those evolved to the SB7 and the devices that you wound up starting out with when you first started working on this method?
0: Well, it's a pretty simple background there. So a lot of the beginning research in ITC started with EVPs or AVPs. There's electronic voice phenomena, which everybody who watched the show Ghost Hunters heard them explain three times an episode. (laughs) EVP is electronic voice phenomena. AVP is analog voice phenomena. So I have a cassette deck, and sometimes we record off of that. Anything that's captured on there is an AVP. So ITC stands for Instrumental Transcommunication. Now, what's interesting is it is something that has evolved over time. Some of the important things that, of course, exist throughout the entire framework is that essentially what you're doing is you're asking questions and sitting and waiting for a response from something else. This began way back in the day with an individual named Friedrich Jürgensen who was known as the accidental father of EVP. It's my understanding it was in the, the late 50s that he had a tape recorder that he was using to record singing and found that he was being interrupted by a voice. And Basically, he got obsessed with this and he published a book called Voices from Space. And I I have not read the book, but I know that he's one of the early people who are into it. And so one of the first things that he noticed, that other people noticed, was that these voices would sometimes speak in other languages, which leads to different theories. That torch was then sort of metaphorically passed on to Konstantin Radova, who was a psychologist in Sweden. I said his name wrong. It's a, he's also a psychologist <laughs> whose name I say wrong every time I say it. It's, it's it looks like
2: Rodive. I just want everyone to know it looks like Rodive.
0: <laughs> <laughs> a Rodive. Rodive. Yeah. Row-dive. I'm taking yeah. the best guess. Yeah. I've heard yeah. Rodova. And so he's yeah. a psychologist who basically got obsessed with recording voices in his laboratory as well. He published a book called Breakthrough in the early 1970s, along with a record. He released a straight up you know, vinyl record with it, so that you could hear some voices yourself.
3: The text spoken by the voices and the sound volume are exactly the same as in the original recording. To help the air adapt itself to the strange rhythm, rapidity and softness of the voice entity's speech, each utterance is repeated several times. The voices here selected are grouped according to the persons addressed and their respective answers, followed by a translation and explanation. They are examples chosen to give the reader a breakthrough, an acoustic illustration of the material presented in the book. The first voice is that of Margarete Petrowski, who had told the experimenter during her lifetime that she did not believe in an existence after death. After her passing, the experimenter asked her how she felt in the beyond and a voice, identified as coming from Margarete, answered Bedenke, ich bin German, imagine, I am Again we hear Margarete Petrowski's voice this time calling her former employer, Dr. Zenta Maurina. Zenta. 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 Zenta! Now the experimenter calls the Russian poet, Vladimir Mayakovsky, and a voice answers, Mayakovsky. The experimenter tells the poet how difficult it is to convince people of the reality of the voice phenomenon. And in reply comes a statement which is typical for Mayakovsky's personality. Konstantin Pluy. In Russian, Konstantin, spit on it.
0: They're very interesting. One of the things that he's doing that a lot of people aren't doing these days is he's doing it with an analog recorder, obviously. And and he was also introducing white noise in from time to time to give sort of that more Plato-esque mold. And then the torch in ITC was passed on to a guy, uh, Historically, uh, as far as I know, his name was George Meek. He made a device called the Spiricom. He was an inventor who made different, I think it was like air conditioning devices. And he worked with this alleged psychic named Bill O'Neill to talk directly with somebody on the other side. And this device also was introducing sounds into a recorded feed to hear what could be played back. His is a little different because, A, it's controversial, and I don't know what's going on with the results or what has been found out or debunked or proven from those, but also because you would hear responses in real time through a speaker, and... Since then, you know, there are different groups out there and there are people who, you know, claim they're getting answering voice messages from Radova, from people like that. I know that there's different, you know, YouTube documentaries and people and I know you guys mentioned your friend as well. There are groups directly dedicated to ITC and ITC research. The spirit box is just another device that has been used in that historical research. It's basically flipping through radio stations very quickly. And that's what we were using when you started our tours back in the day. And that is still the device that maintains our toolbox in the Estes method. The earlier version of that device is something called a shack hack which is just the name for a Radio Shack radio that has a couple of switches and wires removed so that it's constantly scanning. The idea was that spirit voices might exist just beyond the realm of our hearing within the radio waves. And so let's see what we can pick up from there. Radio waves, of course, invade our life, Um, are all over the place. And they're also, in terms of the whole electromagnetic spectrum, their wavelength is the longest, you could say. They travel over extreme distances. They use them in SETI. They use them to go across, you know, space and time. So radio waves are something that we think could be possible or easier for spirits, for extraterrestrial beings, for somebody who exists beyond our realm of perception to imprint a voice onto. Could be a lot easier than a sound wave, which is just right basically in front of your ear so the the whole idea was how can we that was the basic idea behind the spirit box and then we sort of kicked that up a notch after that
3: hi i'm stephanie saloka and this is astonishing legends where there are no tldrs now let's get back to the show
2: Let's talk a little bit about the actual technique before we get into the questions here. Mm-hmm. If you're setting up a session, would you explain who the players are and who does what? What are their jobs and who has what equipment when you start an Estes Method session?
0: So you're going to need at least two people, three preferably, if you're going to be doing an Estes Method session. The Estes Method involves three pieces of equipment. It involves a spirit box. I use most commonly an SB7 spirit box, which is available all over the internet for about $65. And then it uses a blindfold, any old blindfold that you can get from Walgreens or Walmart or wherever you are. And then it also involves soundproof headphones. Now, these headphones, there's a difference between some people think that some headphones are noise canceling and some are, some aren't. You want to be sure that what these are are they're basically sound isolation headphones. Sometimes sound canceling headphones could be taking in sound from the outside and then filtering it and making it sound a little bit different. So instead, you want to go with sound isolation headphones. The specific pair that I have is made by Vic Firth, which is a musicians' company. Um, I play drums. And so, I have a few pairs of Vic Firth headphones. They are enormous cans that sit over your ears and block out around 25 decibels of sound around you. I mean, they're made for people who are playing drums really loud to not be hearing much else other than whatever they're listening to. If they're playing along to a guitar track or something, you'll plug the headphones into that and then play drums along to it. So... You cannot just use any old pair of headphones. You want to go for maximum isolation. That's key. So those are the three pieces of equipment that we're using. Basically, one person puts all of that on, headphones on, blindfold on, and starts the spirit box. There are different settings in a spirit box as to what setting you want to pick is really up to you. If you want my specific settings that I prefer, I usually prefer to run it on the AM frequency, the 200 millisecond setting, which I believe means that it sits on a station for a certain period of time before it flips to the next one. It's the fastest setting that's available for the AM setting. If I'm going to use FM, I'll set it about 150, which is even faster. So you sit down, you relax, and you become the receiver. So that's the first player is the receiver. The other player, of course, is the questioner. The questioner is simply sitting in the room on the other side of the room, somewhere else in the building if you want, and they're sitting there asking questions of the spirits, the aliens, the phenomena, whoever you're trying to get in contact with. And so you're sitting back and and between those two people, you're logging the conversation. I always recommend that people record their conversations. If possible, have a third person there to write down a basic transcript. That's what I always do. Uh, Sometimes you'll get more revelations than you expect. Sometimes a spirit might be one or two questions behind. You can find out information like that through a transcript. And that's the basic level of it. It's simple but mind-blowing when it works. Okay, so a few questions about that. Well, first of all,
2: how much are those headphones, the Vic Firth's?
0: Headphones (laughs) will run you around 75 bucks. They're not cheap, but uh, it's worth it. Okay. Do you have to get an adapter? Yeah,
1: they have a headphone out port. Yeah. We actually have an SB7. Scott's never seen it because I've taken it on field investigations. Nice. But we haven't gone together since uh, his fateful
0: day. At the Sally House. (laughs) (laughs) That that ended his ITC adventures, yes. For listeners who are looking for the specific model, it's the SIH1 headphones, which is sound-isolating headphones, um, is what they stand for under the Vic Firth brand.
2: All right. Thank you for that. I'm sure a lot of people are going to be taking notes. Here's my next question for you. With regard to not necessarily – I want to make this clear, too. I understand it, but I do want to make this clear. What is happening is you're talking to the unknown, as you mentioned – There's a person in the room asking questions just out into the room, and the idea is that the words that the receiver is hearing in a perfect world where everything's working correctly are somehow related to the questions that are being asked, and in some cases may even be right on point or direct answers to the questions. Right. Okay, so then my next question is, in the Spirits of the Stanley, the series that you and Carl did you guys, somewhere near the end, you tried that experiment of where you went to the other end of the building, and you were pretty far away. So just a few minutes ago, you said, you don't even have to be in the same room. And the impression I got from, at least in the Spirits of the Stanley series, was maybe it didn't quite work as well, or you had some issues with it. Are you now blessing that as a possibly successful method? And if so, how far away can you get?
0: What's funny is I want to, I guess it's a fine balance. Putting me We've done that just a few times, so not enough for me to have a solid opinion on it yet. But basically, we set up the receiver on the other side of the building with a baby monitor so that the person who was asking the questions could hear what they were saying. Now, I uh, recommend that people at least be not sitting directly next to the person. Basically, what I'm getting at is you want to be able to absolutely guarantee that the person who is listening cannot hear anything, max out the volume sit on the other side of the room if you have to. But honestly, the Vic Firths are usually good enough, even if you're sitting next to the person. Okay. So
2: you don't have any data yet on how far might be too far, or if anything is too far. Right. So far, you've done it within the same building, but you haven't gotten to a point where I seem to remember an ancient in search of where... They separated pets from their owners by like thousands of miles and yes. tried different things. Well,
1: that brings <laughs> so, up an interesting point in that is, distance is our sense of space and time relevant on the other side? Can they travel? And, you know, we, I was just talking about this uh, to Seth Breedlove, who does the uh, Small Town Monster series of films, yeah. and, and that uh, this is about the case of the Bell Witch, and that whoever this quote unquote witch was, the spirit was able to travel around the world instantaneously yes. mm. yeah, and also be omnipresent and that they could be several places at once. And, and, but you don't know what you're talking to if that, what are the rules? <laughs> are regular human spirits able to do that? Does it require special energy or powers on the other side? And, and that's what fascinated me about the baby monitor experiment is I think that's kind of what you're trying to get at is does distance even, does even, distance um,
0: matter? Yeah, yeah, does
1: distance matter? What was your conclusion on that?
0: You know, I th- like to honestly believe that distance does not necessarily matter. The reason that I say that is because I have had a couple of fairly successful, not phenomenally successful, but fairly successful sessions over Skype. I've done that with people before. The person is sitting on the other side of the country asking questions. So... I don't have a direct answer for that, and I'd I'd like more and more data from – even from your listeners to see what works and what doesn't.
2: There's a couple of points
0: there. One is that
2: you're asking for more information so you guys can continue to refine the method. And so that's something that we should get out there, and we'll just say right now that if listeners decide to contact us with any information related to the Estes method, just put that in the subject line, and we will forward it to Connor for his team to evaluate, and I'm sure he would be glad to get it. I think, yeah, in terms of the distance thing, this gets into a another rabbit hole of the idea that how does whatever's on the other side know that these two parties that are so far apart are both part of this communication process? Mm-hmm. and if people were doing this all over the country at the same time, which receiver goes with which questioner? It begs all kinds of questions about that.
0: It's interesting. And you know what? One of my, as I continue to mentally play with this idea, I would expect that it's possible that an AM transmission session might be more successful over long distances than an FM session. AM sessions, I mean, hey, coast-to-coast AM is broadcast nationwide, but FM sessions are typically a little bit more localized potentially within the way that the radio waves are going into the spirit box yeah more data needed
2: yeah well to that end it makes you wonder what would happen if there was a some sort of scanner equivalent of the spirit box that in addition to AM and FM could access shortwave or possibly ham and then you're really getting out there yeah, along with a wide variety of other radio frequencies
0: one of the things that we tried as well that people can watch on YouTube if they go watch a series called haunt me which is a group of investigators based in Maine who invited us out to do some experiments with them. We tried something that we dubbed the Estes Chamber for one night where basically I took an FM transmitter, I plugged a spirit box into the FM transmitter, and that transmitter had around a uh, 300-yard range where it was transmitting a little localized radio station. And then I sat on the other side of the room with a radio, not necessarily a spirit box, just a normal radio, plugged headphones into that and tuned it in to the same station (laughs) to sort of create a localized net. It was a fairly successful session. So there's all sorts of variations. That's what makes it fun. So prior to
2: the SB7 coming along, did you conduct this with any other equipment or that's just where you guys started out?
3: Yeah,
0: it's just where we started out. Okay.
2: We already asked this, but... I guess I have more questions about what you hear and about how the receiver relationship with whatever's sending the messages works. My first question, which I already asked, was about if you're picking up pieces of conversations that are being broadcasting somehow, mm-hmm. and this is where you get into this statistical unlikelihood that some word that's a perfect answer to a question has been uttered by one of 10 DJs that you can access with your scanner at any given moment at the exact time. And then that word stands out to you too because the other thing is you're saying you will speak every word that is long enough and intelligible enough to be spoken.
0: You don't skip words, right? Right. As a receiver. Correct. You are purely, you're never editing anything. You're just saying everything that you hear. I have some clarifications or tips on that. It's difficult to describe unless somebody is actually under the method themselves. You're going to be hearing sounds. You never obviously just create the sounds and say whatever you want. You're saying what you're hearing come across the device. Most people who are your listeners, I imagine, have heard a spirit box before. Yes, you'll hear some localized words. You'll hear little blips. You'll hear stations identifying themselves for a split second. That will happen. But when you introduce the headphones and especially a blindfold and you max out that volume, I mean, frankly, for a disclaimer, doing this enough is probably damaging to your hearing because you're just surrounded by this noise. You can hear even more subtle things that you can't hear just over a speaker. There are little words that exist sort of in the in-between space sometimes. In addition, if I hear a near completion, I will say the whole word. There's never a a far stretch, but if I hear bananá, then I will say banana. You know, it may not be crystal clear, but if it's 95% of the way there, that's what I'll say. And you want to make sure you say it right away because you cannot let your mind get lost in thinking, should I say this? Should I not? You say everything right away because you'll miss something if you think about it too hard. Well, here's a question. When you watch Hell Hellier 2 and
1: you see people who are – playing the part of the receiver, are you also trying to get the intonation of what you hear repeated? Are you trying to recreate the intonation and the, the way it's said, maybe even like the voice? I mean, there's a very strange <laughs> scene with Tyler, I think, where mm-hmm. that gets really significant and it's even freakier. But are you really trying to do that
0: in a regular session? Yeah, you're trying to sound like the sounds that you just heard. When people strap in, they should purely just consider themselves a loudspeaker for everything that they're hearing.
2: All right. So my next question, and I I think I touched on this a little bit last week, but I wanted to ask it again just to be sure, was this is a two-parter. I'll start with just the first part. Do you ever think that the words you're hearing would not be heard by someone else listening to the same feed? And I know you've split feeds before. I remember seeing that in your series where folks didn't necessarily hear the same words. Mm -hmm. Do you think... Sometimes that the words are being projected into your mind somehow, as opposed to actually coming and then the sound of the snow or whatever
0: is just the backdrop for it? That's an excellent question. And I think that the latter is correct. I think that it's possible that when people... So it's important to distinguish that when you are in a session, you are trying to be in such a relaxed trance-like state that you can possibly be in. I recommend that people find a rocking chair. Find comfort is key, even in a scary, abandoned place. You'll notice in Hellier, we bring along chairs with us, you know, so we can sit down and relax. And you have to be in a state of mind that you are ready to receive anything into your mind. I think that it's quite possible that it's psychically induced. And I say that with a lot of hesitation because – I'm not even sure that I believe in psychics in the traditional form, but I certainly, the more I do this, I'm starting to believe in the possibility of messages being implanted or received into our minds. While, you know, Greg Newkirk said it best in one of the articles that he wrote, where basically he summed it up as saying that the conscious mind is busy listening to sweeping radio channels then the receiver is kind of lulled into a trance, which is noted in a few different ways. You can see a trance-like state a few different successful ways, and this is also through reading and hypnosis. People will start to rock back and forth. People will start to have their eyes water. They'll start to sniff a little bit sometimes. Those are all signs of a trance-like state. And then it's possible when you're in that state that you could begin to hear words and phrases that your conscious mind believes are coming across the feed but aren't necessarily really in the feed, which is in turn making you a channel for those messages. I have a strange observation to make about this, and it's something that (laughs) –
2: I actually had a hard time sleeping just last night. And um, I have the Calm app. These guys sponsored us a while back and got the app. And they have these sleep stories, which are great. But then they also have certain soundscapes. And I have some other apps that play soundscapes too. And sometimes I'll listen to white noise. Or this one app I have has added brown noise, which I didn't even really know what it sounded like until I heard it. And all I can say is it's kind of – it's thicker than white noise. I feel like Hmm. you hear it in two places, because there's a higher pitch and a lower pitch mixed together, and one of them almost seems omnidirectional. I remember this from, you know, when I was in high school, I was kind of an audiophile, obsessed with car stereos and all that. I remember learning a long time ago that bass was omnidirectional. It didn't really matter where your subwoofer was, you can't tell where it's coming from anyway, but the higher frequencies you can always pinpoint. So there's something about brown noise that does that, But I'm getting off track here. My point is that, like, you know, I've been doing this for years where if I wasn't listening to a sleep story or something, I would sit and listen to this static, varying flavors of static. And in some cases, I would hear, because the apps, they're all doing their best not to loop it, but Mm -hmm. there'll be something in there. And I I remember there was this one sound that every, probably every, I counted it, because you do a lot of stuff while you're trying to go to sleep. Like every 45 seconds, I would just hear this little like a little tiny tone, like a beep in it, which is it looping or something. I don't know what it was, but I got to the point where I would wait for it. And eventually that would help me go to sleep. But then last night I was listening to the brown noise. I was having a hard time going to sleep for some reason. And I realized, and this happens all the time, but I never really thought about it. And us talking to you has made me think about it even more. I feel like sometimes I'm hearing words and phrases or other times music hidden in the noise. And I know it's not in there. It shouldn't be in there anyway, but... You hear that, and I think anybody who's ever listened to a noise generator at night has maybe sometimes turned it off. Yeah. And said, I thought I heard a somebody's radio's playing outside, or when you turn it off and it's dead silent. Right. And so it, it makes me wonder how all of that may be interconnected, especially what you're talking about, you get into this kind of trance state.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny, you uh and it's good that you bring that up. I think if I was a listener and I had never tried this before, I'd probably be quite skeptical of it. But I am completely amazed at the success of these sessions sometimes. Now, I think that what could be happening, I don't you know, how, how busy are our minds constantly? And so when you are in a relaxed state, what honestly, if you're thinking about it, let's look at it from just a ghostly perspective for a second. How difficult could it be? In whatever realm of existence that spirits are, for them to move the air around us in such a way that it creates sound that enters our eardrum and enables us to hear it in just the right way, I guess theoretically you could argue it would be a lot easier for a spirit to just input the right sound into our minds, just fire the right neurons, flick the right switch, and then suddenly it's right there. So it gets into some really interesting theoretical questions very quickly.
1: Yeah, there's, I think there's two aspects to it based on that idea that somehow spirit energy is able to take this white noise, this static, and it could be anything. As I said before, I think one of my favorite uh, pieces of white noise or static offered for EVP enthusiasts is Portuguese crowd noise, run backwards, or hmm. running water, or fan noise. It just has to be some kind of clay, as we were saying, to be able to be formed into words. The second part of that is that, well, is it actually some outside force triggering words in our heads or that's something that's already there in our subconscious? Of course, we all have a vocabulary. We have a collection of words and sounds and music, even everything that we've come across. And is that somehow being manipulated, triggered Mm -hmm. in a way? Because what you just reminded me of, uh, there's a strange phenomena that I, I think was on Radiolab or perhaps one NPR show where a guy who was on a like a long sailboat journey several weeks or a month or so. And he's read all the books that he's going to read. There's no entertainment at all. It's just the wind on the water and the waves and a strange phenomena happened where his mind basically started playing a lot of heavy metal music (laughs) that he could not stop. And it was driving him nuts. He said it was just like if he were listening to headphones and it was coming from a radio station he just couldn't stop it. And it wasn't even like he was a huge heavy metal fan. It was just a file that his brain had on store and was triggered because, and the theory is that because he had no outside stimulus, his brain said, well, we need something here. It's too quiet. There's no party here. So it started just (laughs) triggering like, well, listen to this. And it wasn't even his choice. So that's an interesting thing that perhaps that's what's happening. Do you think there's
0: any water to that? Oh, that's fascinating. I like that idea. You know, the mind, I think that there might be bits and pieces of what you just mentioned happening. I'm not saying that the mind necessarily gets bored, but I think that when you introduce the concept into your conscious mind, you're about to hear strange sounds from an unknown source. Here goes. Your subconscious mind could create some sort of superhighway to enable that to come through. Absolutely.
1: There's one more thing that I wanted to run by you before I forget here, or we ran out of time, is that I think the really clever idea about the Estes method is that it's basically taking a simple stimulus or something that people have been playing around with since Frank Sumption, I think that's how you pronounce his last Mm -hmm. name. And he got the idea apparently from the spirit world, I believe he claimed, the instructions. And also, he was not so much trying to communicate with ghosts, but extraterrestrials. And we'll get to that in a bit. But the idea is that you take something that's been accepted already as a tool, and you did a little hack with it. You added some creativity in thinking outside the box with it. Those are where my favorite ideas come from. It's like creating a antiviral medicine because you're introducing the virus in a dead form and getting your body to react. It's something that you're thinking outside the box. One thing I wanted to run by you, have you ever thought of maybe trying this method? It would take a little doing, but doing it in a sensory deprivation tank. Oh, that's cool. No, it has not crossed my mind. Since the movie Altered States came out and was one of my favorites and all sorts of strange things happened, I started to look into it and uh, the work of Dr. John Lilly, in that when you just go into that state where your senses are deprived and you're in body temperature water, you're suspended, you're floating, strange things happen anyway where people start to say that they're hearing buzz saws or outside sounds that are not part of their initial immediate environment or feeling like their limbs are being detached. Mm. Not in an unpleasant way, but just that it's really kind of messing with your mind. I thought that that would be a great introduction uh, to the method,
0: yeah, that's fantastic. I think what the base of all of this that we're getting down to is the classical skeptical argument of like, well, it's just in your head. Well, why does that discount that it's not coming from another source? You know, right, right, yeah, yeah. There's
2: a couple of things I want to chime in on here, which I think is interesting, and I've mentioned this on the show before. I experience not often, once a year, maybe once every two years. I experience a, something called exploding head syndrome. Well, I'll wake up in the night because I hear a very loud bang or explosion or loud noise. And it is so loud and so real that when it wakes me up, I can't possibly fathom that it didn't actually happen in the room that I was in. But it never does. It never has. And in fact, it happened one night when Forrest and I were both staying in the same hotel room at a haunted hotel in Flagstaff. And I woke the, up. The Monte and,
1: Vista. I think.
2: Yeah, the Monte Vista. And if he hadn't told me that he didn't hear anything, I wouldn't have believed it. It was so loud. So that's one thing. And then another thing that I want to add to that before we go anywhere with it is, and I haven't had any experience with these, but I did have a manual on it once. I studied it, never pulled it off, but it's out of body experiences. Another thing they say is that when you practice the OOBE, that when you get to the point where you actually separate, you separate your soul from your body, a lot of times you'll hear a roaring sound in your ears because of that disconnection. And the input that is missing is suddenly filled by something else, which goes back to the heavy metal. Then in another strange aside, my wife works in television. She actually used to work with Mary Steenburgen, who I don't think would mind me telling this story. But Mary had some sort of surgery. I can't remember, but minor surgery for something. And after it was over, for whatever reason, she heard music all the time. And she still (laughs) does to this day. Right now, wherever she is, she's hearing music. And for the whole rest of her life, she hears music. And when people come up to her, I believe she said that with different people, she hears different music.
0: That's awesome. And so
2: after that happened, she started writing music. And now she's actually getting nominated for awards for the music she's writing, which is music she's hearing in her head all the time. She told me this story like at a rap party for a TV show. And I was like, wait, are you hearing it right now? And she said, yeah, I hear it (laughs) while you're talking to me. And she said, yeah. And I was how do you deal with that? And she said, I just have to tune it out.
1: Yeah, it sounds like a form of synesthesia. Yeah,
2: mm. it is. It's like synesthesia, but I think it's different in a way. And I feel like all these things are interconnected somehow, because it's like you're saying about tuning into something. And that brings me around to my next point, is that, are you familiar at all with remote viewing, Connor? Do you know anything about remote viewing?
0: Only vaguely. Yeah. Um... No, yeah, I'll let you
2: take it. Okay, so we have talked about it in the past, and we have a friend who is a talented instructor in what's called controlled remote viewing. There's different types, but this is referred to as CRV. Her name is Lori Williams, and she has a company called Intuitive Specialists. And Forrest has actually taken a class from her. I wanted to take it and haven't had time yet, but she teaches these classes about remote viewing. And her whole point of view about remote viewing is that it's not a gift. It's not something that you're born with or not born with. It's something that anyone can do. Anybody can do this, but it is a skill that you have to develop it and you have to practice it. And I know very little, I know less about the technique itself than Forrest does, because Forrest actually went through a whole course on it. So maybe he can chime in on this. But one of the things that was interesting to me was when you were saying you have to just say the word and you need to say it and get it out and say it quickly. And don't second guess, should I say this word or not say this word? It reminded me very much, I feel like, of some of the instructions that Forrest was getting Hmm. about when you're practicing trying to describe something. Is that not right? It's like get past whatever thing might gatekeep your response. Am I wrong about that, Forrest? Or
1: Well, uh, (laughs) you're trying to keep it to the strictest elements of this methodology and to eliminate your outside influence. And so there's a couple of reasons for that. The idea, though, is that like any scientific experiment, you're doing the exact same things every time. And that's kind of what we're talking about here with the Estes Method is employing the right techniques in the simplest and most direct form to get the most consistent and reliable results. And so when you sit down, you want to avoid descriptors coming in to what you're jotting down that could be influenced. Basically, it's your own influence saying like, oh, I got to be seeing a tree or whatever. So you want to eliminate that kind of stuff because that, as we've known, is that influences people's perceptions of things. Even if it's, you know, again, the old classic, like, well, that weird creature, that had to be an owl. So now you're picturing feathers and talons. And it's like, well... That's the most logical thing for the spooky part of the woods here, but that's not actually what you saw. It's your mind and your imagination coming in to flavor that to something more suitable to yourself. And so, yeah, I think what Scott was saying is that it's, uh, you're applying a technique which is meant to be the same every time when you have a controller. There's a lot of actual similarities between that. That's what I'm saying. uh, There's uh, a lot that sounds very similar here.
2: Yeah. So I'm sorry, but I mean, I remember that Forrest, I feel like one of the things you were saying is that you don't use... Like you avoid nouns, but you stick with adjectives or something, or like you say, oh, it's sandy or yeah, a high and, and or
1: like... I just had that uh, thought, of course, and I, I didn't want to say because i knowing annoying myself. I probably flipped the definition around. But yes, I believe you want to avoid nouns because then that's a solid definition of something. That opens the door to the next thing. It's like for you, Connor, in The uh, Spirits of the Stanley
2: probably when you realize you're talking to Eddie, your mind maybe because you're hearing the same words from him, you hear a lot, or, you know, he calls Carl an asshole or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's and then it's like, okay, I know Eddie's vocabulary. So then maybe you start there's no way you can prevent that from creeping into your psyche, I guess.
0: Yeah. I mean you're awake. So yeah, naturally, just being a human being, your mind is working. I yeah. think what we're getting at is the importance of not just the receiver, but the questioner. Right. So don't let the receiver dictate the session. You know, if you're sitting down, if you're honestly going to do a true-to-form, ideal Estes session, what you should do is have the person who's going to be the receiver know nothing about where you're at, about what you might be doing. I don't think it's necessarily healthy to be incredibly specific. I don't think you'd want to go to the abandoned hospital and talk to Mrs. Wilson and only Mrs. Wilson That gets more into seancey stuff that might sort of change out or mix up your results. But what I'm getting at is that the person who's on the headphones is going to be hearing things. Even the most skeptical of the skeptics will be hearing things. When they start to say words and it's not an answer to your question, don't change the question to fit what they're saying. You know, you're not saying, I'm not going to speak again until you say the word red, but you're being saying, tell me a color. I need a color. I need to confirm that you can hear me, say a color or something that describes a color, and then we can move forward. Set some roadblocks. It can be a healthy way to do it.
2: You haven't tried, and maybe this seems like you're putting too many obstacles in between you and the and the communication, but you guys have not as of yet tried isolating the questioner from the responses, have you?
0: no. <laughs> we did an experiment that has never really been released to the public because we were just, we just tried it ourselves. We called it the debunking experiment, which was kind of difficult. And frankly, I look forward to the comments on this episode to see what some recommendations could be. But here's what we tried I sat down and I did a session six hours before the investigation by myself, which is weird. I sat down with headphones and I had my audio recorder in front of me. And I was saying what I was hearing into the audio recorder. And then in the moment, I recorded that for about 20 minutes. And then in the investigation, I sat down and we said, okay, Carl, we're going to do two 20-minute sessions. And on the first session, he did not know. I plugged my headphone jack into the recorder and I just said exactly what I said six hours earlier. And then in the other session, I actually plugged into a spirit box. To see what the results were in person. Oh, wow. Which was, it was like, I don't know of another way that we could cross-check this. Yeah. And so we found that the session was dull. It was dead when it was the one from the past, but the one in the present had some hits. So obviously there's some bias where I'm like, yeah, I want it to be confirmed that it's working. It also doesn't inherently preclude that ghosts can travel into the past, but getting rid of that, it's fun to play with.
3: This is Sandy H. Crane. When I'm not jamming the
1: airwaves or migrating south for the winter, I listen to Astonishing
0: Legends. Now, back to the show.
2: Well, coming back around to the remote viewing, and we can put that to rest, but there's two things I want to say. One is I feel like you should take a class from Lori because I feel like if you took that beginner class, it might do all kinds of informing on your method because I think there's a lot of common ground. And I think that the controlled remote viewing methodology is so well designed and refined around having a good control experiment that there might be things you could borrow from that and take into the Estes method to further enhance it. But Mm -hmm. the second thing is, Lori says, anybody can do this, like I said a minute ago. Do you feel that's necessarily the case with the Estes method? Do you think some people are better at getting results than others because they have more psychic abilities? She actually specifically says that when psychics come to take controlled remote viewing classes, a lot of times they don't do as well. Because they're already, they have another thing that they need to put aside.
1: Whereas for her, this is something that you develop as a skill. It's actually different because she tells a story, Lori does, Williams, about somebody who was very talented. And they were taking the class and they were getting all these impressions, but circumventing the practice and the technique And it wasn't that it was wrong or these answers weren't correct. This guy was getting all kinds of spot on hits, but it's a different way of coming at it. You know what I'm saying? It's not through this methodology. He was just a very gifted natural psychic and he would come up with amazing things, but they were kind of random and not through the methodology. So it's not what you want when you're doing the practice, because I think what Scott's getting at is that, yeah, you're getting all these hits, but it's kind of wild then Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, and I'm not trying to back you into a corner of elitism where you're like, well, I'm real good at this because I got the big (laughs) brain and the third eye and all that. I just am curious if you think if there's a component of it that you're born with that's, you know, this innate or genetic, my granddad was psychic or something like that, or do you think it's something that anybody could develop with the right mindset?
0: two answers to that. I think that it's something that anybody can develop with the right mindset and the right mindset is essential. That said, I think that people who will be better at this and I think that that makes it a little bit different from things like remote viewing is people who are good listeners. I think people who are musicians, who are recording engineers, who are already sort of audiophile-type learners, they will probably be better than the people who will sit back and and be more visual-type people. I've been fortunate enough to see dozens and dozens of people do the method. I've had several people just sit there in silence, and I don't know if that's stage fright. I don't know if that's – but they're just so afraid to say anything because they're waiting for this grand, enormously loud voice. Sometimes the answers exist in the spaces in between, and you need to be able to listen subtly enough to hear that.
2: It's funny. I just I don't even know where I saw it today. It might have been in a commercial <laughs> or somewhere, but it stuck out to me. It was a quote. Could have been online too. Which it, it said, "Listen to understand, not to reply." Hmm which seems like it might apply here. It's not about replying. It's about like understanding.
0: That. And yeah. and for people who are going to be doing the method, if you are a mo- more visual person, some of the tips that I have given people are to visualize yourself as if you're on a surfboard and you're riding the waves. I mean, there is a natural rhythm to a spirit box flipping through its frequencies. Mm-hmm. And it will be going... And... You visualize yourself riding on top of that wave. Anytime a sound comes across, it's like a fish. And you see the fish, you say it. And then you just continue riding that wave. It also helps people get into a more relaxed state, which is essential, as I said.
2: Without doing any spoilers for Hell Year 2, because it's just come out, I really think everybody should check it out because it's pretty amazing. It's a great next chapter to Hell Year 1 for people that are interested. I'm curious... What kinds of evolutions, are the latest evolutions anyway, that the Estes method has gone through? Have there been any breakthroughs technologically that you found have really upped your success rate or seem like you was getting more hits for you? And are there things that you thought were working that you have just decided to discard because it seemed like it was false positives and that sort of thing?
0: Yeah. We've been sitting with the Estes method for about three years now. We started it in early 2016. We have been practicing and practicing and refining. As I said in the last interview, I think practice is key. You know, I've had the opportunity to be under the Estes method. I can't really assign a direct number to it, but I'd say probably 50, 60 hours of just sitting there learning this. So that said, we decided to up the game in Hell Year 2. We do a couple of different experiments with it. One that we do is we combine it with somebody being under the Estes method And somebody else, in this case, Dana Newkirk, being strapped into a Corrin helmet or a Persinger helmet or a God helmet where she is trying to beam out a signal mentally with her own brain waves that I can then receive on her other side through the method. So that's one idea that we tried. And another thing that we did, Greg and Dana were fortunate enough – to get their hands on a Frank's box that Frank made himself. And we put in the uh, sound isolating headphones and blindfold into a Frank's box at the very end of, of Hillier season two. And that's a session you'll have to watch. Oh,
2: wow, it's so exciting Well I I guess then my next question is and I think you've already answered this but I want to ask it anyway one of the things that you see about ITC and EVPs you know they've been around for decades so there's all these different websites that are deep and have message boards and everything. Is there anything like that or any kind of think tank around the development of the Estes method or right now this is we're looking at it.
0: Honestly, right now you're looking at it but I'm more in, I'm interested in starting something like that. I wonder if I should, I don't know. I wonder how that could work, but uh, maybe I need to start a support Facebook group or something. Well, I mean, we
2: have some ideas, but if you do decide to do that, being the originator of it, please just let us know and we'll make an announcement on our show at least and that'll start to get the word out on the yeah. street about it.
0: appreciate that. Yeah. And and people can always reach out to Carl and myself. We're on every social media platform all the time. Carl's uh Carl Pfeiffer, P-F-I-E-F-F-E-R, I I think. And uh, I'm at uh, Connor J. Randall. So we have people email us sessions. We're trying to collect a bunch of data. So here's a question I have for you,
2: Connor. And obviously, you've been undergoing a long evolution that goes back to at least when you're 17. And if you go back further to when you were 10 and you first went to the Stanley with the children's group, how has the – experience of developing the Estes method over the last three years changed your personal belief system? And do you think that there might be some future technological leap, like there might be some lock that you'll get the key for that might turn it into calling your family on your iPhone, (laughs) just like working that well? Or do you feel like with all the experiments and all the different methods you've tried so far, it's only about 5% better than it was the very first time you did it? Where, Where do you come down on that?
0: You know, what's funny is I think that in terms of the evolution, I have tried so many different variations with this and tried it for so long that I think we've just about spirit boxed it out, you know? I don't know what that next device is, but I think that we have to recognize a couple of things here. I have realized, and this is from my own personal belief, that there is something beyond the realm of our perception within radio frequencies. I am not an engineer, but in trying to understand how we can better tap into whatever is next, whatever that mold that we stumbled into breaking through, that is where voices exist from another worldly existence. As a faithful person, I'm not sure that we're ever going to have a telephone to the dead. I think that um, giving out too many answers sort of gets rid of the purpose of faith in the first place. And so, I think that this leads into a couple of the things that I have noticed from sessions. So, this is a great segue. But I think that we don't necessarily get direct answers all of the time, but there is something out there that's saying, yes, you're on the right track.
2: Well, and that comes back to something that you said before we started recording tonight, that you had some observations about what might be going on from a communication standpoint. Mm -hmm. Can you share those now with
0: us? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. So I, uh, Carl and I, Carl essentially wrote out like a full academic paper. It's like 50 something pages and we're still adding to it and writing to it based off of this method because this isn't. I guess it needs to be stressed, and I hope that it is through this interview as well, that this is not something that we're taking lightly. This is an experiment that we really want to dive deep on because it seems to be working really well. We have had the opportunity ourselves to do sessions for hundreds of hours, and we've had the opportunity to have people send us sessions And as long as I know that somebody's using the correct equipment, I will log down some of the answers in that session. We'll also do transcripts of sessions. So we start to see what the question and answer framework starts to look like. There are four or five things that I have noticed through successful sessions that I am curious to see if other people do as well, given all of this data. I'm not going to give them all of way just in the basis of scientific research that I want to make sure that they're not all out in the open. But to give listeners an example of what we're talking about here, one thing is what I call the echo effect. We're noticing it in really good sessions, an echo effect where the questioner will say a word related to the line of questioning or not, and then the receiver will repeat that exact word. Uh One example is from our series, Spirits of the Stanley, that people can see. I just randomly say... Well, let's see if they like music, and I start to sing along to a song I I make up, and Carl, who's being the receiver at this point, starts to say things like, music, stop, no, and then he says, stuck with me, and I say, oh, for the record, that's a song by my favorite band, and then Carl immediately after that says, for the record. It's an effect, I don't have an answer, but I'm noticing it consistently, dozens of times over different sessions. People repeat what the person just said. Don't know why, but that's one of the things. That also seems to be a phenomenon
1: with regular EVPs, which are the question is asked, a recorder is going, you don't hear the answer being spoken, you play it back later. And a lot of times, this is the first one of the first things that we noticed with that group, the Haunted Housewives, when we were in Kent, mm. is that there's often a repeating. Yeah. And sometimes it's
2: remarkably similar to the voice of someone who's present but they never said it. Oh
1: yeah. Which is odd. Yeah. Yeah. And and, it doesn't have to be, and that's what I noticed watching you guys do your sessions is that a lot of times it doesn't make sense or, I mean, it's fascinating because it's spot on so it's a little eerie, but Mm -hmm. when we were at the Kent Paranormal Weekend doing a ghost hunt on the stage, I believe it was Kathy Weber who asks a question out loud while the dr 60 Panasonic recorder is going and she just gives some instruction like, you know, please speak into the red light. Mm-hmm. And then we play it back and we hear red light, red light. Oh, and yeah. so it's not an answer. It's not like, oh, uh, that thing there, I should speak into that. Okay. It's just repeating something that she said, but she didn't obviously say that. It's just, yeah. it's a weird piece of phenomenon.
2: Also, you get answers to the question before it's finished. That's the other thing that happens with yeah. certain EVPs. So. That's interesting too, because it seemed like you were talking about getting questions, especially when you look at the transcripts, and you've gotten answers that are downstream of the question, or you go mm-hmm. back and maybe there's a relationship you didn't see before.
0: And I don't know the answer to that, you know. And John Tenney also tapped me into, and you guys probably know this as well, but things with Zener cards and ESP tests. Some people sometimes their answers are seventy percent correct, but it's two cards down the line, you know, things yeah. like that. I don't know that it's always synced up. So that's why the transcript's important. Here's another one that I always am interested in noticing is what I call observational responses. Observational responses, in example, they will not give a direct answer to your question. Instead, the voice that comes across through the receiver is noticing or observing something that's happening in the room. For example, I was doing a session once, at my house practicing. And I had Greg on the other line. I think my sister was in the room and we're sitting there and I'm doing a session and I say, dogs barking. I did not realize at that time that downstairs, my brother had walked into the house and my dog was was yipping and jumping around. It's not answering anything that we were talking about, but it's as if the voice is saying, I'm aware of the environment of what's going on around us. And that's a big, a really interesting thing as well. I don't know if that relates to this next one, but the third and final one that I'll talk about is what I call gatekeeper answers, where they don't give an exact response, but they give a response that Basically, as a hint to you, as a nod saying, I know exactly what you're asking, but maybe I'm not allowed to give a direct response, which is fascinating. And what I'm talking about there is another thing that you can look up. Like I said, that episode on YouTube, we have the question of how many fingers am I holding up? Yes. And it's like, well, they're not, they're giving numbers. We know he can see numbers, but he's not giving the right number. We've also had a gatekeeper answer that related to that where my friend Ty, in that Haunt Me episode, was holding up two fingers. And he said, how many fingers am I holding up? The receiver, myself, said, peace. It's a peace sign. It's not a direct response, but it's an answer showing showing that they know what's going on. Right.
2: So, you know, what's interesting about those two examples that you give is they rule out a thought that I had about the number thing from Spirits of the Stanley, because in Spirits of the Stanley you would deduce just from that one, this is why it's so important to do it over and over. You would deduce just from that one that they can't see. They know what your question is, but they couldn't see how many fingers your friend was holding up. But meanwhile, now you're here in Maine with this other group and they won't say two, but they clearly know it's a peace sign.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So what's happening? I don't have the answer, but yeah. it's fascinating. And, and you know, what I'm beginning to wonder if maybe Maybe sometimes they can and maybe sometimes they can't. Maybe they're sitting on one end of a subway station and the subway is in between us and we're, in our existence, sitting on the other end and there's a bunch of train cars passing through, but every now and again, they get a glimpse to the other side, to the other platform. Wow, that's an awesome analogy. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me ask you this because it comes
1: up in Stanley and also I think it really ties into the theme occurring in Hellier, is – Just exactly what you said, Connor, gatekeeping, and that, and I think you were talking about the numbers and Stanley, and I also believe in that series, you specifically ask whatever spirit you're talking to, are you not allowed to tell us? And sometimes it seems like it's playful. In this series where you're you're trying to hold up numbers, it's like, oh, what do you want? Numbers? Seven, four, Mm -hmm. twelve. Two, And maybe it's being playful. It's like, well, I'll, if you want numbers, I'll give you a bunch of numbers. I'm not going to give you the one you want. And we talked a little <laughs> yeah. bit about this in part one. Yeah. But it's also perhaps a permission thing. And I think what the question was put towards the entity you're talking to was, are you not allowed to say because either maybe of two things? One, it's an energy thing. That's also brought up in Stanley and that We know you're trying to be respectful of their time on the other side or their energy output. And and this must be draining and we're peppering you with a bunch of questions. And it's like for a human to run up a flight of stairs to answer each one and then come back down. It's (laughs) there's a lot of effort that's being expended. And you're just asking me about colors and numbers. And so there's that aspect of it. But there's also, as I've said throughout the history of our show, there seems to be a bit of rules That are happening on the other side. There are things that can happen. There are rules that seem to be bent, some broken, but there are Mm -hmm. things that definitely don't seem to happen or can't. And there's a rule to that. And they don't don't make sense in our logical world because we're based in physicality. But I guess the question to you is, what do you think is going on? And is there an instance where you got some communication where the answer is more clearly
0: than not, I'm not allowed to tell you? I've never received that directly, but it's based off of everything that I've observed. It's something that I continue to think is probably the case. I don't understand. I don't understand if there's a a handbook for the recently deceased, you know, et cetera, (laughs) pop culture reference. I I don't know because sometimes those rules are bent or are changed a little bit. Again, not to sit and promote my own stuff here, but at the end of Hellier season two, we do a session – And there are several direct answers coming from my friend Tyler Strand while he is under. And I wonder if that entity or that being was a higher graduating class from other people that we communicate with. Right.
2: Yeah. So one other interesting thing for me, and I don't think this is necessarily – we could label this as synchronicity. But there's been a lot of parallels for a journey that we've been on. I feel like we're, you know, it's a thing where you're on one of those interstates like uh, 70 in Colorado, where the two sides like disappear from each other, but they're traveling (laughs) and you know they're next to each other. Of course, those are opposite directions. So that's maybe not the best (laughs) metaphor. We've gone through this process because I think in Hellier 1, there's one of the things that's mentioned as an instigation for Carl picking up his interest in it is listening to a podcast, which is Euphomet, Jim Perry's show. Perry's a friend of ours. He's recently been on the show. And I think I mentioned in part one, he's actually about to repost that very episode, if people want to hear that on Euphomet. So look for that, E-U-P-H-O-M-E-T. It's called Is Was Just a Symptom, I believe. He's renamed it. But that was the episode where he talked to Greg about everything that started Hellyer. And that's I guess, set you guys on your path. And then a year and a half later, we did a three-part series on Kelly Hopkinsville. <laughs> and this thing happened to us, and it's happened to us a bunch of times now, and I should have been writing them down, where we have a strange process for next topics. People a lot of times ask us, well, you you plan it out. And yeah, we make lists and things like that. But sometimes we're just like, yeah, I don't want to do that. Let's do this other, and something will just drop into our laps mm-hmm. that we're both really excited about 10 days or sometimes <laughs> one day before we need to get started on it. And that's sort of what happened with Kelly Hopkinsville. And so we developed this three-part series on it. And then we wound up releasing it in a way that was concurrent with the anniversary of the event itself. Part two came out on the anniversary, not on the anniversary exactly, within a day or two. There was a full solar eclipse with a totality that passed over Hellier wow. as well as Kelly Hopkinsville during that same series. And then our last part in the series, none of this was planned. Our last part in the series was on the last day of the Little Green Men Festival in Kelly Hopkinsville, (laughs) which they do every year. I would like to say that we're marketing geniuses, and we're like, oh, look, everyone's going to be Googling this stuff, and they'll find our— And that's happened to us a bunch of times. So we went through this whole thing, and then when we started to get wind of what you guys were doing, but we didn't know because things weren't out yet, then we went to the Sally House— And that was based on something that went back to when we started in 2014, I guess. Our fourth and fifth episodes were about Amelia Earhart. She is from Atchison, Kansas. So we got intertwined with this show called Chasing Earhart and Chris Williamson, and he was having a big panel in Atchison. He invited us out to be on this panel. So we went to the panel, and that's the same town the Sally House is in. We weren't even going to see it. But then Maria Miller, who's the head of tourism there, she somehow finagled for us to get some time to go over there. So we went over there and that's when we got the really weird EVP that we told you about file 10, So then coming back around three months later, after that, before Hell, Your Season 1 had even come out, we didn't know Mm -hmm. anything about the Estes method. Mm -hmm. Maria is texting Forrest, me, or both of us, and she's just like, wow, you know, Dana, Newkirk was just here. She came to the Sally house. I was like, oh, what did they do? And she said, it was this thing called the Estes method. And she was freaking (laughs) out about it. She was like, it was the craziest thing I've ever, you know, Maria, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth if you hear this, a bad impression of you. But she was very excited about it, and she said that it was really amazing. And I was like, I don't know what that is. Yeah, And then season one dropped. And I don't know. Do you know anything about the session that happened at the Sally House?
0: No. They did okay. it just for the group themselves. I'm not sure it's on yeah. recording. Yeah. Okay. So I was curious
2: about what the outcome of that was. Both curious and both don't ever want to talk da- about it again. <laughs> but it's the- <laughs>
0: <That's> awesome. Dana <laughs> has listened. Um, I know there's other people out there who are doing the method. Dana has listened. I guess if you were to rank number of hours for somebody who's listened and been under in uh-huh. the Estes method, Dana's in – top three for sure. Oh, wow. She's well practiced. She's known about it for a couple of years and she practices.
2: I believe Maria said that whatever was going on there, the receiver was on the second floor and the other person was on the first floor. So they were isolated. The second floor is where we got our File 10 recording as well. Cool. So I'm, I'm curious about that, but maybe Greg and Dana can let us know what happened there. But all of that just seemed to be concurrently happening. And I can't say it led to us having you on the You're on the show because we saw you guys all in Hellier and we wanted to interview you. So yeah. that's, I don't know how much of it's synchronicity, but I feel like we're floating along in this river <laughs> watching what you guys are doing. We're just waving from another log. Oh, no, you know, I love
0: like, it. <laughs> hey, you're on you're on an important log as well. You know, it's funny. Hey, it's this. welcome to the synchronicity aspect. Yeah. Of this. It is difficult to describe, and I know that people probably sit and shake their head or roll their eyes, but uh, it's about thinking about a particular word or something, and then seeing a book that falls on the floor, and there's the word right there. It's, it feels incredibly guided and pointed. yeah, and, and you know what? Maybe the reason that uh, this is happening is because somebody who's listening to this right now could provide the next breakthrough in this experiment. could be I don't know. Well, you better get that Facebook group going or whatever it is you're (laughs) (laughs) doing. Well, to me, it's like
1: to use an analogy from a hellier the balloons are there if you care to notice them and pick them up. Love it. The tin cans are there. There are signs I think people get all the time, but they push them out of their heads. They don't uh, pay attention. It's amazing what you can find and what you're led to if you pay attention. And I think a lot of it also is your own subconscious, just trying to steer your own ship correctly. But we ignore that. We're too busy in our own heads. But that is something that Laurie Williams said. I, I asked her, and I think I mentioned this on the show before, just as, as an aside while we are taking a break during the training. It's like, uh, hey, do you ever see any more weird stuff once you start to open yourself up to... Controlled remote viewing, and, and just to be clear, controlled remote viewing is probably the least woo-woo at all to get to these results. And that's their purpose, is that it's, a like you said, a meditation and an opening of your mind. It's your inherent abilities for intuition in a way, and she won't ever tell anybody where does this all come from because she doesn't have the answer. It's like, that's a personal question. It's a personal answer. But once she said yes, once you start kind of opening yourself up to that, and you just have to notice... Things. And then she said, Yeah, you might start noticing things that are outside of your normal realm of experience. So Mm -hmm. I definitely believe that once you start going along and and you start paying attention, things can point to different directions. But it's up to you to take that path and it's up to you to notice. So I I want to steer the conversation here to other techniques and methods that evolved. From your experiences at the Stanley and let's say regular ghost hunting, <laughs> your <you're laughs> run of the mill ghost hunting, into what's eventually evolved into the field research that ends up being demonstrated in Hellier 2. So we've talked about the Estes method. I think Scott even asked you, is there any uh, offshoots of that? We discussed that a little bit. But I want to know about these other things that you were using. And you'd mentioned this before, the God Helmet. Mm -hmm. And that's been incorporated. And could you talk a little bit about the types or the differences in results that you get with that compared to the other things that you've tried? And also, what are the side effects? Are there any lasting effects from using these techniques?
0: Sure. You know, if you look at the entire iteration of the way that the method works it first started just us and it was just Carl Michelle and myself we were and and sometimes her husband Mark sometimes a couple of other friends uh sometimes Steve Hart we would be in the basement of the Stanley Hotel and we would stay up until the early morning, the crack of dawn, because we would clock out from our tour job and then go out there. And we realized that this was too strange to put in front of typical you know, touristy ghost folks. Sure. And so we would practice it ourselves. So we started it. That's where we sort of refined it. And then we started to do it with groups sometimes. It's an exciting and interesting thing to watch. And then we started practicing it all over the place. And that is the Estes method. And then... The thought was, let's try all these different variations. We try having two people listen to a feed at once, try recording the feed, try using the baby monitor experiment. Or, and then the other thing, if you're changing as many factors, we're not scientists, but in terms of trying to follow a method, you don't want to change too many factors. But if you can just change one or two, try and see what those results are. So one of the things we changed was the device itself. Let's try listening to a white noise generator or a pink noise generator and see what happens. Then the other thing was let's try with the Frank's box. Frank's box being something that honestly, frankly, no pun intended, I don't know what exactly is going on with there, but I know that it's using radio frequencies and it's ebbing and flowing them kind of like an ocean wave. Mm -hmm. It is a very jarring thing to listen to. And the Frank's box yielded interesting results in Hellyer too. In terms of a side effect, I think one of the side effects is that you want it to be loud, so be careful about your hearing, but you also you want to be in there for a long period of time. When I do a session, I'm never under for less than 45 minutes. It's a while, and sometimes, mostly, more often than not, the better stuff happens on the last half of the session when you're fully relaxed, mm-hmm. and you've really entered that framework of mind. Then, taking that into account... One of the things that we wanted to try to change was to change the framework of the person's mind. Greg and Dana, my peers here, and Hilliard too, got their hands on a God helmet. It was developed by Dr. Michael Persinger and I believe Stan Corin are their names. Mm-hmm. Basically, yes. what it does is it you put this band around your your head, and it changes the magnetic field around the brain in that very localized area. The reason that they have it running the way that they do is because they did different – I mean they're they're legitimate scientists up in Canada. They found that there was a certain way that the brain was acting. They're trying to induce what they would call a religious experience, a framework of mind where somebody is perceiving something that is beyond their realm of perception. So they actually created a device – that changes the way the brain is receiving information. And again, as a disclaimer don't go strapping magnets to your head. That's not how this works. <laughs> no. Frankly, yeah. I'm not astute enough to know exactly how it works. This device in particular, there's even some shows, and I won't name names, that are claiming to use, you know, things like a God helmet, but really it's magnets inside of like an old superhero mask. And like, no, <laughs> this is something that they had to <laughs> save up for a while to actually get from the person himself. Right. So more more of that is needed. But basically, you are trying to get somebody to alter their state of mind without – and people have asked us this before. Why don't you take psychedelics? Why don't you take something like that? Because then we wouldn't even believe our own (laughs) results. (laughs) Right. How can we change it up? If this is happening in our mind, let's see what happens when we try to change that.
1: Were there any side effects? I noticed Mm -hmm. in Hellyer, Dana mentions you know, she was kind of in a mental fog energy-wise for a week after – some of those very long sessions, are there any kind of physical aspects or perhaps more interestingly, any spiritual side effects or after effects?
0: Dana says that in the seven days following a session, she is a space cadet um mm-hmm. where yeah. her brain is a, just a little bit jumbled in terms of the way that, that she normally goes about. Frankly, I'm too nervous to try the god helmet myself. And, and she's the kudos to her for being willing to do it a few times. It's recommended that you don't do it more than once every you know month or so, not constantly. Mm-hmm. She says that day three is the worst. I remember that. Don't know why, but as things are settling back down. And then it's funny, we've noticed just looking at Hellier in general, we're trying to figure out How this has affected us from a physical aspect. Greg started to notice that he was having even – and he hasn't even done the the sessions. He started to notice that he was having some memory issues. Mm. Whether that's just related to high strangeness in general or not, I'm I'm not sure. (laughs) Or aging, as we've noticed. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) I think all of us have had little bits of that. I don't have the answer, but we're curious enough to keep looking. Forrest and Scott,
2: thank you for supporting their sponsors. I'm Freddie Valentine. Now back to the show.
1: Well, here's perhaps one of the more controversial techniques that Mm -hmm. appears in Hellier 2, and I think you know where I'm going with this. It's the use of hypnosis. And I think if I remember the series correctly, this was done not really related to what went on in the investigation in Hellier, but... Maybe a couple of years before that, right. maybe 2014, 2015, where kind of an experiment was tried with, I believe it's a friend of Greg Newkirk's, mm-hmm. where one of his friends goes through a hypnosis session. And it's an experiment where, under hypnosis, it's suggested to his friend that perhaps he is experiencing an alien abduction. And I totally understand this viewpoint because we've heard our friends Rob Christofferson and Rich Hannum talk about the psychic or spiritual nature of a lot of the descriptions of a alien abduction from the viewpoint of the abductee, where they, and the most interesting thing that I think Rich has said about it to me is there's one case where two people were driving, the passenger said, you know, kind of falls asleep or nods off for a second or goes into a trance and wakes up and says, I was just abducted. And the driver says, you were, you didn't go anywhere. Mm -hmm. You've been here the whole time. It's like, no, no, it just happened to me. So there's a psychic or yeah, kind of out of body experience with this. And a lot of people have of course heard of hypnosis being used to recall these memories. But I like the idea, again, it's the hack of, can you go and reverse it and maybe try and implant this experience and maybe get some, if you can open up a channel let's say, to the phenomena and get some answers from it. And I think that's where they were going. So my question to you is, well, one, I believe, yeah, it was discussed that are there ethical questions in trying this, even though I would certainly volunteer to be put under (laughs) hypnosis for myself, but for somebody who's not expecting it and didn't know what was going on, what would you say to that?
0: You know, it's it's there is a moral question there. I would only obviously condone volunteering to right. go through something like that. That's the other thing, too, is people have sent us messages on Twitter and things. So they're like, what are you doing? This is wrong. is <laughs> so like, well, we all volu- we're all here. We all volunteered. Yeah, we raised exactly. our hands, which right. is important. But the experiment that you're referencing, I think, is a brilliant idea on the part of Greg Newkirk, where yeah. hypnosis regression therapy for people who have seemingly undergone abduction scenarios. Pulling those memories up from their subconscious is something that's been going on since the Betty and Barney Hill incident. But what happens if you reverse that? What happens if you get a hypnotist who is willing to put the thought into somebody's mind that they are being abducted by aliens? And how much do you have to guide them? How much do you just have to put the ship in their mind then you just see what happens? I think that that experiment and... I won't give away the entire thing for those who haven't watched Hellier 2, but it is terrifying and also really brings some interesting questions into the framework. I have a few ideas as to what was happening, but I don't know if you had anything else you wanted to say on it.
1: No, I, I just think uh, I'm kind of going to echo your sentiments here Ned. that I think if you're volunteering and you know what to expect. As I said, I wouldn't force that upon somebody who th- thought they're going to go in for a smoking cessation or or overeating problem and go under hypnosis for some other treatment or for some other guys, and you spring that on them. That's not fair and can have lasting effects, as we can see. But that's why I was curious for myself to volunteer. I would willingly do it just to, because I know it's coming. I know it's in my head as far as imagery and, and ideas about the abduction phenomenon. Mm-hmm. It hasn't happened to myself. I have no memories to recall that I know of but I would be curious to see what my conscious working in conjunction with my subconscious comes up with for answers. And I didn't get this. This leads to the second part of the question for you. I didn't kind of get this until Carl later on does it for himself. And I got to say, it's a wild session, especially considering the other things possibly going on in the house upstairs. I hope That's a good enough teaser to mm-hmm. get there to go out and watch it. But <laughs> The idea didn't really gel into my head until I started to realize like, oh, is this possibly opening up some kind of communication channel? Yeah. Like I said, it, it very generally to the phenomena, not saying it's aliens or or some other consciousness, but yeah, some, actually some other consciousness. Was that the goal and what happened and do you think it worked?
0: Yeah, that was absolutely the goal. The initial idea that Greg had a few years back with it was I want to be abducted by aliens. Well, if I'm not able to lay down on top of a rock in Sedona and say, come get me, and if they don't, (laughs) then what do I do? How can I induce that kind of an experience? Well, the answer that he came up with is to have a hypnotist come in and induce that experience. So here's the thing. We essentially wanted to tap in. We wanted to create that mental highway. I think that there's a non-physical aspect to the abduction phenomena, as you were saying, with the person who was in a car and was abducted. I think that alien abductions can happen within our own mind. I don't think they need to beam you physically through your window and then up into their ship. I think that they could— Tap in right where you're sitting right now. As unsettling as that is, I think that that's a reality. There's three things that could possibly be happening with this kind of a scenario in my mind regarding abduction directly. I think that number one, and what I believe to be the case, is that you're tapping the individual into an experience, into the phenomena creating the highway. I think that number two, the possibility is that what if it was an accidental regression? What if the people who underwent that experiment were abducted when they were kids or something and and that was an accidental regression into something that was repressed for a reason? That, I suppose, could be a possibility. And then the third possibility is that his subconscious was just kind of playing a game and making it up. I mean, any of them are possible and any of them are interesting.
1: Yeah, that was my conclusion in watching the scene is that you don't really know because it's easy to say— that, well, you're asking somebody questions about something they've certainly heard about, maybe not even have been uh, an enthusiast of the phenomenon or the field of study. But certainly we've all heard about it in popular media culture, Mm -hmm. and you have some ideas about it. And that's just your subconscious like, oh, well, you want that experience? Well, here's what I know. (laughs) Play the tape. And that's what it is. Or, like I said, the only way to get it is that I I think the scene was heading that way, And not to give anything away, but... It's trying to get an answer. That's your double-blind study right there, or or you're blind in that you're trying to get an answer that the person wouldn't normally know. That's a direct answer to a question that they couldn't possibly know. So the answer's coming from something outside of them.
0: It's interesting, and and one of the things that's worth bringing up in Hellier Two, you will see Carl get abducted. One of the scenes, one of the many things that we had to delete. I actually went under hypnotism as well. While Lonnie, Lonnie Scott is the name of the hypnotist who did this experiment, good guy, it's cool to find a hypnotist willing to experiment, (laughs) he also put me under in a session. Of course, what I went through was more of a personal experience and wasn't necessarily related to the case, and so it it ended up on the cutting room floor. During my hypnosis session, though, I did see a face at one point that I described, and Whether or not I'm glad we have that on camera, if that person shows up in the future, cool. It's funny though. It's a weird frame of mind. I think some people really enter a state. Some people are still kind of having a waking dream. Here's a question. Scott, would you volunteer for it to be abducted in hypnosis? (laughs) No. No. (laughs) I would not. (laughs) Sorry,
1: I laughed. I knew what his answer was going to be and I I laughed. Yeah, no.
0: I mean
2: I can – Look outside at that and have conclusions about it. And I don't need to personally experience it to prove anything to myself or to anyone else. So I would not, especially after, you know, I think I've mentioned this to you last week. I can't remember if I did, but we recently had a guest on who has a horrifying abduction story, Mm -hmm. um, Terry Lovelace, called The Incident at Devil's Den. And go back and listen to that show, and you'll see why I say no. Yeah, I don't need that memory, real or imagined. I don't. I don't need it. I've yeah. heard about it, and I it's get not
1: it. always great. You don't <laughs> get superpowers. But one thing that Terry said, and, and that, uh, and I thought was a funny anecdote, and I believe it's on the homepage of his website that he gives these talks about his experience, and we find him to be very credible. But it does excite a lot of people, and I, I totally understand Greg's point of view there. It, you're searching, and that, well, that's why I think everyone's involved with the series and why we're doing our podcast, why you're doing your work with Hellier and going out and experimenting in the field is that you want to get a glimpse into the greater beyond and what's going on. Yeah, And like with the abduction experience, Terry said he gave this long talk about, you know, and it was pretty horrific. I mean, it was, it's fascinating. There are, if true, there are things that very, very few humans have ever experienced. And he was one of them. But this very excited young man comes up to him after this talk. And he's like, Mr. Lovelace, I got to know, like, how can I get abducted? I want to be abducted. And he just says, didn't you hear what I was talking about? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Didn't you listen to me? But I get both sides of that and that you don't control it. You can ask for it. Something totally different may happen. That's a little bit of the part of the theme of Hellier, I think. Mm-hmm. If you go searching for something and you find something else. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, it's
2: like the sign the old man has in close encounters, stop and be friendly when the <laughs> UFOs are going by.
1: <laughs> but he also saves the press conference by diverting the attention. <laughs> yeah. Point, so point. here's a couple of other questions. Then again, getting to other techniques. What were some of the things that you wanted to try and didn't? And why didn't you? Things like the Gansfeld effect or using SLS cameras to
0: possibly see something that was there that's invisible to the naked eye. Yeah, both could absolutely be used more. I talk about changing factors in the experiment. You don't want to change up too much at once. One of the best consistencies that we had was being at the Stanley Hotel night after night after night. And then when we were cut from that, it seemed like we were cut from some of that communication as well. So we had to reevaluate and say, "Okay, let's not alter it too much, but let's try this and this and this. Now that we're a couple of years past that and now that the experiment is kind of blowing up and going all over the place... I think that there are some variations that could be utilized more. One of the things that I've recently been – had ideas on is uh, my basic hypothesis is let's make it easy for these beings, the other, to come through. I think that the Estes method makes it easy to hear them because you're expecting to hear something. I think that one of the things that should be combined possibly more often is the use of red light. I'd like to see more places that gets in line with more of the Gansfeld experiment douse the receiver in red light, which would is in theory, the longest wavelength of light and the least disruptive. So if something needs to come through, it may be easier to transmit that message on red light. So I'd like to see more of that. And then I'd like to see more people doing transcriptions of their Mm -hmm. sessions and what they're doing. Just kind of an off question uh, in tangent to that. Did anybody
1: during the whole filming or, or even your Stanley experience see anything strange that was noteworthy? Just visually, because I'll, I'll look, again, a lot of this is a personal experience, which I, I'm totally into, you know, I don't think is worthy of certainly noting, but what was the weirdest thing you guys saw? <laughs> again, going back to your days at the Stanley and on through Hellier.
0: Uh, In terms of an, something outside of ourselves, yes. we saw a kind of a loping type shadow figure, which was pretty unsettling with long limbs that was going in, in this area of this building called the Carriage House. That was odd. That was at the Stanley? That was at the Stanley, yeah. Wow. It was somewhat of a corner of your eye thing. So I don't necessarily give it all the credence in the world. But also with visualization stuff, I've seen shadow figures. I have yet to see, boom, here's a full-bodied apparition of a person in front of me. Mm -hmm. But mental images, there was one night where we all had the image of a – all three of us had the image of a buffalo pop into our minds. Mm. Seemed incredibly random which is cool. (laughs) And then, of course, the most powerful visual image that I've ever received is the one from Hellier 1, which is the very first time that we uh, received an an image of an object that came into play later. I guess it should be stressed. It's so weird to see something because you're so ingrained in what you're listening to. Something Mm -hmm. like that should be noted. So if you see something, say something just like airport security. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, here's a, kind of a different detour as we
1: approach the end of the interview here. A few more things I want to know about. One, which I thought was a fascinating, and again, not to give anything away, but as you progress through the series in Hell, Your Part 2, I believe it, is it Kabbalistic numerology starts to <laughs> figure prominently in the story and uh, specifically the number 93? Did you mm-hmm. know anything about that, specifically numerology or, or that field of study before this happened in the show?
0: I did not. And that is what made it even more powerful, is that it just leapt out into the case. I guess Mm. it's, and I hope that this is also stressed in the show, I have, the occult is not my bag. And (laughs) so to realize this, all starting to connect within that was pretty bizarre. And I'm sure a lot of people who are listening know a lot more than I did, but all I did was had a couple of people in my life piece together those bridges. And, yeah. you know, my girlfriend helped out with these numbers and with all this stuff. And and then we have another special guest at the end of Hellier 2 who helped right. as well. Okay. Well, let me just ask you this then. Has
1: the number 93 or any other numbers, again, I make that connection to the Stanley Hotel and the number 440, numbers do come up and Has there been a specific number that has stayed with you since the ending of the filming?
0: There has. It's a good question. I see threes all over the place. I think a lot. Mm. I'll show you guys. I have a tattoo (laughs) of a three on my wrist. That said, I may just be more conditioned to see things like that. In addition, my number is 19. I was born on 11191991, November Mm -hmm. 19th, 1991. And so that's popped up a lot. But – In terms of the actual phenomena reaching out, I think it has its phone number potentially in the number 93. Right. I'm waiting for it to leap out. (laughs) All
1: right. Very good. Well, coming to a conclusion here on your experiences and our our discussion here, there is one thing I think that stands towards the end or the horizon of understanding and answers – and it has to do a little bit about Frank Sumption and his ghost box, and also uh, Sarah Estep. Who, Scott, I don't remember watching the Sightings episode Heartland Ghost, which was oh yeah, which had featured the Sally House. Yeah, I remember every frame of it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> she was the older lady who was featured in the series as being one of the pioneers, you could say, in researching. Electronic voice phenomena, having started the nonprofit organization AAEVP, the American Association of Electronic Voice Phenomena. And she was using reel to reel tapes back then. And so she yeah. heard thousands of these things. Well, one thing that's attributed to both Frank Sumption and Sarah E. is that they came to some conclusion or some hypothesis that, you know, we think of EVPs as. There you go. They're passed on spirits and humans and and loved ones, Mm -hmm. maybe sometimes an elemental or something else from the spirit realm has kind of popped in to leave a message. One aspect of their research was thinking that some of these messages might be coming from extraterrestrials or in John Kill's case, an ultra terrestrial. In keeping that in mind and your experiences, Connor, it it leads to the bigger question. Where are these messages coming from? Do you have any sense at all? Of all the characters that you're talking to, with Eddie aside, of course, Mm -hmm. he seems to be his own kind of character. But what are some of your thoughts as as we wrap this up about, like, what is out there? Who do you think mainly is possibly communicating with you guys, leading you somewhere, or
0: messing with you? My best guess, if I had to guess, is that it's more of something, some sort of an ultra-terrestrial dimension, something that exists in another dimensional space that is trying right. to reach out. I don't think that we're necessarily hearing from our deceased friends or something like that all the time. Right. I, I think that oftentimes what you're doing, especially with things like the method, you're putting on headphones and it's you're essentially give, making yourself into an antenna. Mm-hmm. The antenna is picking up on a signal, on a message from somewhere, where that message is coming from is frankly anybody's guess. But I have yet to get to a point where I think that we're doing anything immoral about it. I think that there's a spirit operator out there, for lack of a better term, who helps us out. And I love it. It's cool. (laughs) Let's see what else happens. So
1: are you and the gang going to continue following the clues and the leads? Because we're all hoping you do. But we also want you to be safe and, (laughs) and keep your sanity and all that. I know it's taxing to keep that up. And it's not just the production and the post-production, it's Mm -hmm. it drains you a little bit physically, I think, and emotionally. But are you guys
0: going to keep at it? We're going to keep at it. I think that we are – I think that there's a lot of people who are helping give voice to this phenomenon. And I like to think that we're doing our part in the form of a pretty show about Mm -hmm. a lot of very strange happenings. (laughs) And so we will keep our email inboxes open and keep trying experiments over the next – couple of years and probably after that as well. Absolutely. Excellent. And I would just say my conclusion on the whole thing was
1: you're not going to get answers because I know some of the comments, you know, people have said <laughs> what I saw on Twitter, which I, I thought was fantastic. And I think uh, John E. L. Alteni had responded. It's a viewer saying like, well, what is it? Is it ghosts or goblins? Like <laughs> people want a solid idea. Like just mm-hmm. tell me what it is. Tell me what we're looking for here. The need for cognitive closure. That's yeah I is. can't leave this yeah. dangling. i my brain has no room for anything in between. Just what is this thing? What is happening here? What is doing this? And I think the answer in my view is that you're being led to ask the questions mm-hmm. to keep exploring, and answers aren't this is something you said earlier in the interview you're you're going to get little bits here and there and they're tantalizing and and titillating, and they lead you one way and they lead you another. And really the importance then here is to keep asking the questions, keep exploring, keep researching, because that's the point. It's not the answer. Would you agree with
0: it? Yeah, absolutely. And I hope that that, more than anything else, is sort of what is being stressed through these projects. So taking Hellier, for example, people get upset because it's not tied up like a bow at the end. There's no, it's not the same act that's in... Frankly, nearly every other paranormal show. It's like, well, here's the conclusion <laughs> right. because we don't know that. This is a real-time case. So instead, what we're doing is we're creating a toolbox and then uh, nervously but still doing it, handing it out to the world. And I think that's a that's a pretty beautiful thing. So I'm happy and honored to be playing a small part in it. I couldn't agree more. And I have just one last question, Connor. Yeah.
1: Is Indrid Cold dead?
0: <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I think that I think he's pro he might still be out there. <laughs> I I think that Terry was on to something and I think it's quite possible that he's out there and maybe even listening to this right now. Well,
2: man, we just want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Very importantly, I think you're on top of a really amazing discovery here that's going to evolve so much, especially in the next few years. If you guys do get something together, some kind of website or message board where people can submit their results, let us know, and we'll get that out there as much as we can anyway on all our channels. I think uh, what you need is like the McDonald's handbook there, which has got maybe, you know, just a couple pages. You open it up. Step one. You got to use this, this, and this, and this, and here's how you report it, and if you don't do these
0: things, we're not even going to look at your results. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a continuing experiment, and it's something that is crowdsourced, and I mm-hmm. want it to get out there, so I appreciate you guys giving the Estes method an outlet. As for now, people can get a hold of me on social media channels. And then also, if you Google Estes Method, there's an article on Weekend Weird that Greg Newkirk sat down and wrote with instructions. But until that booklet exists, let's all continue getting results and seeing what happens.
2: And before you go, where the series that we've referred to, Spirits of the Stanley, which is the older one, and then also the second season of Hellier, Hellier 2, where are the best places for people to find those?
0: Yeah, people can watch Hellier and Hellier 2, which is sort of becoming our flagship experiment show on Amazon Prime. Those shows – so that that's available on Amazon Prime in U.S. and the U.K., For international listeners, it is available on YouTube. We prefer people to go to Amazon Prime if they can, but it will be on YouTube if you can't watch it any other way. And then for the show uh, Spirits of the Stanley, which is what Carl and Michelle and I created while we were at the hotel, where you can see the Estes method begin and all of those experiments and variations, that is available on Facebook. And the Facebook page is Spirit Investigations Team. So if you look up Spirit Investigations Team on Facebook or, or find me online, I'll direct you to it. That has the complete series in the video link on that channel. Those episodes are also on YouTube in small parts. To get the full experience, check it out on Facebook. If you don't see it there, it's on YouTube under Spirits of the Stanley.
2: Yes, and we'll have links to all of that stuff in the show notes for this episode as well. So if you are... On your iPhone, riding the train, driving a car, mowing the grass. When you get home and get back in the house, uh, just take a look at the show notes and you can click through to any of the stuff that Connor just mentioned.
0: Thank you. Thank you guys so much for having me. Really enjoyed talking to you guys. Yeah. Thanks. We hope you'll come back. We'd love to have you back on the show. Of course. We'll be around. And uh, we'll, we'll continue the experiment and continue getting the word out there. You're doing good work. Well, I just want to thank Connor again for coming in. That was truly amazing.
2: And before we mm-hmm. wrap up tonight's show, I, I I just want to say, I can't tell you how fascinated I am with how this works. I, so much so... I said I want to try it out in our next
1: investigation, wherever that may be. (laughs) There's a bunch of things I would like you to participate in as a wild experiment that I have lined up. And you don't even know about it yet. Well, no,
2: this is a good one. And you know what I like about this one is that when you're the receiver, even though you're zoning out and you're going down. By the way, I bought a set of those headphones. They're on the way already. The drummer's headphones. I'm excited. But the thing about it is that the receiving end of it doesn't feel no matter who is channeling through you or whatever you're hearing on the mm-hmm. sp7 or whatever you choose to use it doesn't feel like that's a particularly frightening experience like the one of listening to file 10 from the sally house it feels like something where you can just get into the zone and really try <laughs> yeah. to be a communicator and that appeals to me a lot yeah it, it, you know it's like putting your ear to the train tracks trying to figure out if the train's coming it's you know it's interesting
1: well it's like uh, i put it this way i think if you're the receiver, if you're the person listening to you could say the the skipping broadcast there, you're not sure of the context. You're saying the words. And it's freakier in this point if you're the questioner, because you're getting the answers. That's what you'll see when you watch this documentary. And that that's what's weird about it, and that seemingly you are getting direct answers. Not all the time, of course, but it really does make you think about it.
2: Yeah, and I think the important part of the process, it's kind of like we talked about in the interview about remote viewing and how careful they are with their journaling and their procedure. And I think that's what's going to be critical with the Estes method. Everybody's really got to be doing the exact same thing. It's like setting up a franchise of whatever, Subway, McDonald's, whatever, name your franchise. You want to yeah. do all the exact same things so that if something unusual happens, you don't have to wonder whether or not it was your methodology, because you're, right, the right. methodology is rigid. And that's what I love about Connor and Carl's approach to this,
1: is defining that methodology so precisely. Well, it's not only that, I think. And what I like about it is that it's simple, it's straightforward. It makes sense because you're trying to eliminate one potential avenue of contaminating your QA, and and that you're trying to separate those two things. But if you look at the rest of the documentary, they're trying all kinds of things, which is, again, I think is admirable in that they're reaching out they're trying to they're mixing it up they're trying different things they're thinking outside of the box in this case and trying different things that might work and elicit some kind of direct response and answer and as you see you get hooked in that you want answers too and i think that's the basis of what we're all doing here and and if you go out and you try and research in the field as well you want some kind of answer. You want to know what's going on. And that's what they're trying to get to the bottom of. And they got a lot of energy and they're not stopping and they're filled with great ideas. So I really look forward to seeing where they take this. Where's the evolution going? That's a good point for us. And
2: it comes back around to something that I can't really explain. It's it's sort of an innate feeling, but I guess it's, that there's something very comforting to me that this process that, of course, they invented is in his hands. It just feels like it's with the right person to take it forward and continue to develop it. Plenty of times inventors create things and then someone else should take it away from them. There's lots of times it's <laughs> happened, but that's not what's going on here. It just, yeah. it feels like they're nurturing it and developing it and taking care of it in a very positive way. And I think it speaks a lot to their humility that they didn't, as he said, they didn't put their name on it. Their name's not on it. And now they see people using it on all kinds of ghost hunting yeah. TV shows and people aren't giving them credit. So one thing that I'm glad that hopefully we're able to do is to plant that seed and for people to know that Connor J. Randall and Carl Pfeiffer were the initial creators of this process. And they had help from some friends along the way, like Michelle Tate. And you can see about mm-hmm. all of those folks that were in the mix with them when they were starting it. If you watch Spirits of the Stanley that we talked about, and we have a link to that in our show notes, but yeah, people need to know that this process is one that they developed and they developed it. At the Stanley Hotel, there couldn't be a better place for it to have started out. And now Mm -hmm. they're taking it even to new places, right, Forrest?
1: Yeah, well, what they're doing, as you'll see in the series, is that they're adding other elements and mixing things up, combining different techniques and approaches to see what works, what gets results. And it's, you know, as we said earlier with this, and also in part one, that it's not a clear-cut path to hitting the jackpot every time with these results. You're not always going to get responses or a response that you can understand Or that was warranted. So what you got to do is you got to keep trying and then you have to, it's tedious. You have to keep trying and trying and trying over and over again. And you log the course of it. And hopefully along the way, maybe you do get something that has real meaning to it and context. So what you'll see is them adding an element like hypnosis and seeing what does that do to the effects? Does that open up some kind of channel that was not previously known? But again, this is a hard thing to do in this field because there's no path to regular results. That just does not exist. You're at the whim of... Forces that are unknown and possibly greater than yourself. So you're just there with your instruments and your own observations trying to make sense of it all. And so it often leaves you with more questions than answers. Well, for those of
2: you that listen tonight who are interested in learning more about the Estes Method or possibly taking it up yourself or who maybe just want to reach out to Connor, he has a public Facebook page at facebook.com slash Connor Randall. That's facebook.com slash Connor J. Randall, C O N N O R, the letter J, and then Randall, R A N D A L L. You can also follow Connor on Twitter at pretty easy to remember, Connor J. Randall. He's right there. He's using the same thing everywhere, so that makes it a little easier. There's additionally a Facebook page called Spirit Investigations Team, which is the one he mentioned that features the full version of the Spirits of the Stanley series we referred to uh, tonight and last week, and we have a link to that in our show notes, and that's a good place to watch that video because it's all one video there. You can find it on YouTube as well, but it's broken into weird little pieces. If you're interested in seeing Hellier, you can visit hellier.tv, which has all the information about how to watch or donate there. And in our show notes, you can find additional links that Connor provided, including one to an article that Greg Newkirk wrote in January of 2019, this year, about the Estes Method. It's an ongoing process learning about all this stuff, and even just for us in the time since our interview with Connor, Forrest, you and I both watched an interview with Frank Sumption on YouTube Mm -hmm. that was pretty amazing. He's the creator of the Box, and we have a link to that in our show notes as well. It's really fascinating. According to several websites, there are only 97 of the Frank's boxes out there, and I guess Greg and Dana got a hold of one as well. It wasn't clear to me whether – did they buy that or did they borrow it?
1: I don't know. Uh, I'm sure they probably said on their Weekend Weird blog somewhere on their website how they got it, or I'm sure people who follow them closely will know how they obtained it. Of course, once you're in that role, you start getting people sending you stuff. (laughs) And they're certainly great collectors of all of this gear and uh, memorabilia. So everybody knows, I don't think we mentioned it. they have a thing called the Traveling Museum
2: of the Paranormal and the Occult, which is super cool. If you manage to figure out where they're going to be, you can go and check out all kinds of haunted items they have. It's a miracle that vehicle hasn't crashed. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> 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 knock on well, woods, Maybe that's what, on wood. what's keeping <laughs> it going. Yeah, maybe know. so. Maybe yeah.
2: there's some protective spirits
1: there. Billy the Idol doesn't want to be knocked around in, yeah. in the trailer. Yeah. yeah. Well, wherever they got it, I know you want one now, don't you? Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I do. And on that point,
2: <laughs> right. I'm going to say... I'm very interested in acquiring a Frank's box, and there's only 97 out there, But mm-hmm. and trying it out with the Estes Method. So if anyone out there has one they'd be willing to part with, please send us an email at com. In the meanwhile, we'll settle for the Spirit Box SB7 that we already have. But my main point about mentioning Frank, who has since passed away is that he just seemed like such a sweet, humble, and friendly guy. And he clearly had a passion for building these things, and he just kept improving on them, that no two Frank's boxes were the same. He was changing them and trying to make them work better. And like Connor, trying to figure out how to make them work more effectively. Some of these things that Frank said in the interview that struck me was that he himself thought there was some kind of link between the person and the device, but he wasn't sure what. The other thing that I thought was interesting about Frank's own experience was that he didn't bother to ask questions at all. I thought that was super fascinating. In fact, he felt that they, whatever they are, didn't want him to ask questions. It seemed to me that he was trying to convey that they had more of a teacher and student relationship with him, obviously with them being the teacher and him being the student and that they just wanted him to listen. All this made me think about all the various approaches you could take to these experiments, which I would love to see somebody just go off on each path and report back to Connor and get all this information compiled. Because the other thing that's good about Connor and Carl is that they're looking for various approaches. They just want to make sure that everybody uses the same protocol so you can eliminate deviations in the protocol as causing an unusual effect. So anyway, it's truly mind boggling trying to wrangle it all. It's a big project and... uh, I think it's pretty exciting. And again, if you want to go even beyond all this, you should check out the 10 episodes of Hellier 2, which is on Amazon Prime right now. It's it's pretty fascinating.
1: I'll just say I'm pretty curious to see how this all plays out regarding Connor and the gang using and developing the techniques you see in the Hellier series. So far, it's been a pretty wild and entertaining ride. And who knows? They might give up. They might decide that they can get no more useful information from their pursuits or how they're approaching this. Or they could just run out of steam and motivation, as this kind of field research is, it's costly, it's really time-consuming, and it's tedious, as it is sometimes exciting and even scary. Not to mention the carrot-and-stick trickster nature of whatever is compelling them and bouncing them around. But what I will say is if they do decide to continue with their research and methods on this particular journey, I think their adventure is just getting started.
3: At the end of a recording session, the experimenter says that he is tired. A voice comes in with Bonne nat. French and Swedish. Good night.
2: That's going to wrap up tonight's episode on the Estes Method. Special thanks to Connor J. Randall. This is our last regular show of the year, but if I were you, I would keep an eye on our feed because the long-lost holiday episode will be
1: releasing late in the day on December 23rd, 2019. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. I'm Sandy H. Crane.
3: And I give permission to Astonishing Legends to
1: use my voice to conduct Lectio Telefonomancy.
3: S is in Sam. A-L-O. That's too
2: cheesy. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendel and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who
1: is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at Patreon.com astonishinglegends
2: Astonishing Legends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions.
1: Good night.